Hey everybody, welcome to episode 48 of the Metal Detecting Show podcast. My name is Kieran, and I have been metal detecting for nearly 30 years. This week I want to talk to you about what the landscape might be telling you and what to look out for. So let's get on with the show. Hey everybody, before we start I want to thank you for listening to the podcast and I hope you enjoyed the show this week. But before we begin, I want to give you the following information. If you want to give me feedback or interact with the show, please reach out to me on Twitter at Detecting The or Instagram at The Metal Detecting Podcast. Or if you want to pop me an email to Kieran at TheMetalDetectingShow.com. And now, if you would like to leave me a voicemail, please do so on SpeakPipe.com forward slash The Metal Detecting Show. The link will be in the show notes. If you would like to buy me a coffee, you can actually do so now with buymeacoffee.com forward slash metal detecting. And lastly, and most importantly, if you like this content, please don't hesitate to tell your friends and don't forget to hit that subscribe button. Hey Detectorist, welcome to a windy show this week. I hope you can't hear the storm raging outside, but before we start, some updates from my world. We're still in lockdown here, but I got out again this week and had a few hours hunting with the CTX and the 6-inch coil. It was one of those hunts with very little trash and a few good finds. My finds included an old chicken penny from 1928, a gold earring and an assortment of modern stuff. So, a nice bit of old and a nice bit of new this week. One of my finds broke my heart this week as it looked so like a ring when it popped out. I mean, it really looked like a ring, but unfortunately it was not to be. It was a ring-shaped piece that had been trimmed off a bit of old copper pipe. Man, it looks so like a ring. Anyways, if you want to see my reaction, I caught it all on camera and you can see it on my YouTube channel, which is called The Metal Detecting Show Podcast. I'll pop the link in the show notes this week. I have already got this week's hunt site lined up, which is a verge of grass where people get changed into and out of their swimming gear while protected by their cars. This site is on a beach near me and is only about four foot wide but about a quarter mile long, and I only noticed it recently as some changes had been made to local access, redirecting me to a different parking location, requiring me to walk past this site, and I'm sure you're all the same and constantly looking for potential hunting grounds, and this definitely caught my eye. To be honest, this site wouldn't normally excite me, but with lockdown in full effect, lads, beggars can't be choosers, and I'm excited for the change in scenery. If you have Netflix, you've most likely watched The Dig, the movie about Basil Brown and the discovery of the Sutton Hoo Anglo-Saxon horde in 1937. I won't go into the plot or give away any spoilers, but there is a conversation at the beginning of the movie where they are trying to decide which mound to excavate first. That's as far as I'll go into the movie. It's great, check it out, but this prompted me to think that this week we should talk about reading the landscape with a view to looking for clues to potential hunt sites, then lo and behold, I'm reading Searcher magazine this week, and there's an article called Location, Location, Location by Andy Carter. So I knew I absolutely had to chat about reading landscape, taking account of visual cues in architecture and what to look out for when reviewing maps. So one of the main adages in metal detecting is go where people are, or more importantly, go where the people were and looking at old maps will give you an excellent view of this over the years. We have talked about reading maps before, so I won't go into how to read a map in much detail, but if you can get yourself a physical copy of some old maps of your area, 
and compare them to newer maps, you will be able to see some change. This is the secret to reading maps. You need to compare them over the years, looking for that change. For example, in Ireland we have a sport called Gaelic football or hurling, and if you look at a modern map you can see the thousands of clubs that scatter the countryside in Ireland. But if you look at the location of these clubs on a map from the 1800s, you will see that the majority of these club sites used to be cricket grounds or commons. And that's the key. You're looking for the comparison between what's there now versus what was there hundreds of years ago. There can potentially be villages or railway lines no longer around that existed years ago and all that remains is a label and a couple of squares and lines on an old map. But that lost village's location may intersect with a permission you have. Review maps and look out for changes in the terrain, like have fields been made smaller or bigger? Is there a holy well or a church that has existed for hundreds of years? Has the route of a river been changed or dammed? Was there an old Roman road straight as a die that no longer exists? I think you get the idea. So, you're on site and you're thinking, right, where do I start? Well, the landscape can give you some visual clues, starting with water. Water is always a good indication of people. Is there a spring on site? Often a site of worship or paying homage to the gods, but most often a site to water your horse or livestock. Is there a river or bridge or even a shallow nearby? Again, people would chuck coins off bridges to pay homage, but also would travel miles just across their wagons and horses at a shallow spot, creating a huge potential in fines accumulating there. Is there a bend in the river? Either bank of the river bend can deliver fines from far upstream as they are sluiced out of the river, up the bank or wall. Looking at the land itself, are there holes either sharp or sloping for example? If you look at the impact of either of the world wars had on the landscape, you will see foxholes that look like someone took a chunk of ground out with an ice cream scoop, or trenches that look like a snake had moved through the landscape, but there is also potential for impact craters like meteorite impacts on the moon from crashed planes or more dangerously exploded or unexploded ordnance. Nettles on the site are always a good indication of a privy pit or a household dump, especially handy if you're bottle hunting near an old farm site. No variance in landscape is also a cue. Sometimes the land is just too flat, indicating potential manual intervention over the years. It may look like a perfectly flat field, but it may be in fact the site of an old horse racing track, or as we call them in Ireland, a curra. There is evidence of horse racing going back thousands of years to ancient Greece, and even before then, man has always raced horses and always preferred flat ground to do so. This flatland could be an old common or even an old baseball or dueling site. Apart from horses, other animals have had impact on the landscape too and have benefited humans over the years. For example, I knew growing up that the quickest way to cross the plains I lived near was to follow the rabbit and livestock tracks, especially if there was a bush overgrowth. And people have done this for millennia. These animal trackways will slowly change over hundreds of years but are always worth hunting on. You have done it yourself, I bet. You're walking across a field and subconsciously you start following the little walkway that the animals have made. Even if it is not the most direct route to your destination, you do this because it's convenient and probably a little bit cleaner as well. This even happens in the city, for example, where a new path is laid creating a longer route around a grassed area, it'll only take a few weeks for people to start ignoring the new path 
and take a shortcut across the grass because it's again convenient. Is there a defined border to the field? Is the field small, indicating that it may have belonged to a serf working for the local landlord on their little piece of land? Is there terracing? People have been working the fields for thousands of years. In fact, the further back you go, the more people worked on the fields. So again, go where the people have been. It's about looking at what is out of place on the landscape and imagining what has caused it. And is there a potential for whatever it was, will it increase the possibility of some great finds? My latest thing to watch on YouTube is people door knocking on houses looking for permission to search the backyard. It always starts with a hunter driving around for potential sites by looking at the architecture of the house to help date the potential site. There are a few things that can help you date a house. Let's start at the roof. Obviously, if it has a thatched roof, the house is old. But did you know the slate roofs only became popular in the 14th century? Back then, it was only used by the military in castles for its robustness and by the super wealthy of the day as a sign of opulence as it would cost a fortune to transport the heavy building material from the quarry where it was hand cut. This hand cutting gave it an organic stone look to it. Slate roofs came to the US in around the 16th century. If you're looking at a roof and it has perfectly thin slate roof tiles, it's not old. The older the slate, the thicker it tends to be, in irregular shapes that closely resembled a square as best they could. Along with the roofing material, you can look at the chimneys, which were only adopted in castles in the 12th century. A quick way to age a house by the chimney is by its location. If the house is a single-story house with a chimney in the centre of the roof, there is a possibility that the house is old, as chimneys on the side of the house only became necessary when a second story was built, something the Normans brought to Britain in 1066. Up to then, a chimney was either a hole in the roof or smoke simply permeated through the roof. Moving down to the most telling detail of ageing a house, and that's its windows. Early houses had small casement type windows made out of coloured leaded glass, which wasn't very structurally sound and was drafty, and were only replaced by sash windows in approximately 1676, but then the Georgian 6 over 6 style sash came into fashion, allowing homeowners to open their windows without changing the facade of their houses. A top tip, if you're inspecting a sash window and it only opens from the bottom, this indicates that it would be an early Georgian era sash window, potentially dating the house to the mid 1600s. Weights and pulleys were then standardized, allowing for easier opening and closing in the late 1600s, with the upper window being able to open soon after. The window and glass tax of 1696 which stopped anyone other than the rich from having large panes of glass, resulted in the iconic six small glass sash window. This design continued till 1845, when the tax was removed and larger panes of glass could be used, reducing the window to two panes of glass per sash. We then go full circle back to the casement type of window, but with large panes of glass, it seems that the windows just kept on growing since then, so smaller windows mean older houses. Listen, this is only a very high-level review of something that is a science in itself. People have wrote books and books just on the history of the sash window alone. So, if you're interested in it, make sure not to take my word for it, but go to an actual expert on the subject. Do you go knocking door to door looking for potential old sites to hunt? What do you look out for when examining a site? Let me know. 
That's it for this week. I hope you liked this episode of the Metal Detecting Show podcast. Check out our website, www.metaldetectingshow.com for this episode's show notes. Check out our Patreon page if you want to help the podcast stay alive or just want to buy me a coffee. Actually, if you want to buy me a coffee, you can do so now at buymeacoffee.com forward slash metaldetecting. If you'd like to leave me a voicemail, please do so on speakpipe.com forward slash the metal detecting show. The link will be in the show notes. And if you feel like taking your appreciation to the next level, feel free to leave me a positive review on any podcast directory of your choice. If you like this content and would like more, please don't hesitate to tell your friends and don't forget to hit that subscribe button. Once again, I hope you enjoyed this episode. We will chat to you all again next week. Get out there, eyes down and happy hunting.